This morning's passage can be found on page 896, 897 in your pew Bibles. John 10, verses 22 through 42. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, How do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. Deirdre Robertson. Anybody heard of that name before? Deirdre Robertson? I didn't think so. Though many of you have never heard her name before, I bet that the majority of you in here have heard her voice. She read some of the most famous words ever recorded on American soil. In October 1995, she was the clerk for the Los Angeles County Superior Court, and the world stood still while she read. She tripped over the name Orenthal, But she did not trip over what came next. Not guilty. When she uttered those words, the watching world either breathed a gigantic sigh of relief or a gigantic sigh of irrepressible anger. O.J. Simpson's body instantly uncoiled. He breathed his own sigh of relief, and a faint smile appeared at the corners of his mouth. He was free. Well, statistically speaking, an extremely high percentage of Americans believed in O.J.'s guilt. And certainly the arrows of evidence seemed to point toward O.J. You got the bloody sock, the expensive bloody shoes, the undersized glove, the speeding white Ford Bronco chase, hair evidence, fiber evidence, and we could go on. 
Now, whether some of that evidence was contrived or planted, we may never know. But that's not the point this morning. The point is that the evidence in the case demanded a verdict, and the jury made the call that day. Well, our text this morning paints the picture of another trial, another trial that took place 2,000 years before Mr. Simpson sat in that L.A. courtroom. Now, there's no actual courtroom in John chapter 10 here. There's no judge and jury, but there's evidence, and then there's a verdict. Some conclude that Jesus is a shyster and a liar. Others conclude that he is who he said he was, all based on their understanding of the evidence. And so I think John's intent here in chapter 10, as it has been so often in the gospel so far, is for you, for us, to draw a conclusion based on the evidence that he's presenting. So there's two verdicts in our text today. It's bookended by them. In verse 24, you've got these Jews asking questions of Jesus. And then by the time verse 31 rolls around, they've all drawn their conclusions. But then skip down to the very end of the text and look at what could feel to us like a throwaway portion of the text. It sits there quietly, unassuming, but wooing us to believe in the full sufficiency of Scripture, that no ink is wasted, that no idea is worthless, that all Scripture is God-breathed for our good. Verse 40 says that Jesus headed back to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And that's John the Baptist, not John the guy that wrote this gospel. But by this point, John the Baptist is dead. But Jesus goes back to where his ministry began through the megaphone of John's ministry and of John's work. And the people there, right where Jesus' ministry began through John's preaching, the people there have been waiting for the evidence to pour in, watching for that smoking gun to see if what John said was actually true, waiting to see if Jesus really was who John claimed he was. Well, in the first chapter of this gospel, we covered this months ago now, in the first chapter we see John the Baptist claiming that this new radical preacher that just come on to the stage, Jesus, Jesus is the Lamb of God come to take the sins of the world. That's what John proclaimed. But these people, they weren't so sure yet. They needed to see evidence. And the evidence that they'd witnessed over the ensuing months and years had demanded a verdict. Was this guy who he claimed to be? And now that the bulk of that evidence is in, They've made their decision. Verse 42, you see it there. Many believed in him there. Well, what evidence had they seen that pushed them over the edge of belief? We should really pay attention to that if we want a right understanding from these eyewitnesses about why they believed that Jesus was the Christ, that he was who he said he was. That's the one thing that was missing from the OJ case, if you think about it. There was no eyewitness someone there to witness that terrible crime. If there would have been someone there to witness it, the trial would have almost been moot, right? But the thing with Jesus is, there were eyewitnesses, tons of them, and it would do us well to listen to them this morning. So Christian, you may be tempted to tap out here, like, I already believe in Jesus. Can I encourage you, don't tap out. There are some challenging, rich truths here that will stabilize you on a mundane Monday, on a terrifying Tuesday, 
and even on a wonderful Wednesday. Two points this morning, demanding a verdict from you, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, or undecided. Two points demanding a verdict. First, Jesus' claims demand a verdict and trust in his care. Jesus' claims demand a verdict and trust in his care. Well, it's winter in Jerusalem. You can see that there in verse 22. So it's been just over two months since the first half of chapter 10. The text we preached last week, it's been two months since then. And this is the last winter before Jesus' death. And as his life winds down to a close, he begins to unpack even more explicitly his identity and his purposes. And so as it happens, it was time for the Feast of Dedication. You can see that in verse 22. This feast occurred on what would have been their December 25th, so Christmas time. The Feast of Dedication was created as a remembrance for what had happened 175 years earlier when this madman named Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and he polluted the temple. He came in there, he set up shop, set up his pagan altar, and displaced the altar to the Jewish God, to the one true God. Well, obviously, the Jews aren't very happy about that, but they knew when they were beat, so they, they fled. They were outmanned and outschemed, so they went to the hills, but not for long. Just three years later, they regrouped and overthrew this oppressor under the leadership of a dude named Judas Maccabeus, whose nickname just so happened to be Judas the Hammer. Bro, Judas the Hammer? That is a nickname right there. Whatever we can do to get my name changed to that on the website, it would be great. Hursty the Hammer, that'll work really well. Anyway, the Hammer recaptured the temple on behalf of God and reconsecrated it to the one true God. This was the very first Hanukkah. And they determined to celebrate this every year as an eight-day festival. They called it the Feast of Dedication, right there in verse 22. Interestingly, it's also become known as the Festival of Lights because they'd light lamps or candles every day of the feast to celebrate. And this is where that Jewish menorah or candelabra that you see every year around Christmas time or Hanukkah, that's where it originated. And so you can picture the lamps and the candles lit everywhere around town, probably not unlike our experience at Christmas time in the city. And they did this as they celebrated their deliverance from oppression. So Jesus is hanging at the temple and gets cornered by some Jews who, are ask, who want to ask him a puzzling question there in verse 24. They say, how long are you going to hold out on us, Jesus? Can you please just actually say who you really are? We're tired of waiting. But this is not an honest question from them. It's a leading question. They knew good and well who he was claiming to be. They knew that through and through. What they wanted from him was an unambiguous statement that would legally entrap him and provide an adequate legal basis to imprison and then finally kill him. So they want him to blaspheme, on their terms at least, to explicitly claim to be the Messiah. They want him to claim to be God with his words. But Jesus doesn't quite oblige them here. He remains implicit rather than explicit. Why is this? Why does Jesus so consistently simply imply his identity rather than explicitly state his identity? 
Have you ever thought about this? Like, what if Jesus had just been explicit right here in December? What if he had broken the law right now by blaspheming and thus sentencing, sentencing himself to death? What would have been at stake for you and me if he had done that? Anything? Could Jesus just as easily have died for the sins of his people in December as he did a few months later on Good Friday? Why is Jesus so intent on avoiding arrest and death until when he would finally die? Was it just some epic game of tag or hide-and-seek that he finally lost a few months later in the Garden of Gethsemane? Did Jesus just run out of steam? Was he tired of the shtick? I don't think so. I think something really special is going on every time you see Jesus kicking the can of his death down the road a little bit either by speaking with veiled references like he's doing here or by escaping arrest or death somehow. Look down at verse 39. You've got this whole mob of people surrounding Jesus and trying to arrest him, but he escapes. How? And more importantly, why? Well, I think it's because of the symbolism that's at stake here. I think it's because Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and imagery. I mean, what are the chances that Jesus would actually die on Passover? If you're unfamiliar with the Jewish holiday Passover, it's no problem. This celebration dates all the way back to the very beginning of the scriptures in Exodus 12. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt. And so God plagued the Egyptians with all kinds of terribleness that we won't get into this morning. But he did this to secure the release of his people. The tenth and final plague was brutal and violent and bloody. Every firstborn of the land was going to be killed. The hard truth. Unless, unless you had the smeared, you had smeared the blood of an unblemished lamb on your doorposts. Then the angel of the Lord, when he saw the blood, would pass over, pass over, he'd pass over the home and the firstborn son would be spared. So Passover was a reminder of protection from death by death of a sacrifice. Passover is the celebration of, uh, uh, of freedom, protection from death by death of a sacrifice. Well, Jesus just so happened to die on Passover, the very same night that the Jews celebrate God's deliverance by painting their doorposts with the blood of a substitutionary lamb, the lamb that died in the firstborn's place. But if there was no lamb, the son would die. It was a substitutionary lamb. It stood in place of the son. So it was no mistake that Jesus died on this very day in history. Romans 5 says that at just the right time, Christ died for us. This is why the right time was Passover. Now, humanly speaking, the time of Jesus' death wasn't up to him. Not when he was arrested, or how long his trial would take, or where they would kill him, or how long it would take to walk there, or what way they would kill him. Humanly speaking, he just couldn't control the exact day or moment of his death. So if he really was trying to demonstrate that the Old Testament all culminated in him, how in the world could he possibly ensure that before the sun set on Passover, he died as a sacrificial lamb. Humanly speaking, he couldn't ensure this. But it wasn't just humanity involved here. It was the sovereign grace of God. 
not only is Jesus' death, the time of his death, impressive, I think his resurrection is another strong reason for all these small delays along the way. That's what we're trying to explain right now, right? Why Jesus kicks the can of his death down the road a little bit. So track with me here. Passover occurred on a Friday. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread on Saturday, that would have been their Sabbath. And then the Feast of first fruits occurred on Sunday. That's our Easter Sunday that we celebrate next week. Later in the book, John describes the death of Jesus. And then the description immediately follows, reads like this. You can see it on screen. Since it was the day of preparation, preparing for the upcoming Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that they might be taken away, that the bodies might be taken down from the cross. So the Jews, they go to the Romans. They're under Roman oppression at this time. And they say, look, tomorrow is an important religious day for us. It's the Sabbath. And it's like a high Sabbath. It's one of the most important Sabbaths for us. Could you take the bodies down a little bit early so that you don't mess up, so you don't desecrate this really important uh, Sabbath day for us? And so the Romans, they agree, they oblige, and they take the body down and place it in the tomb. That was Friday night. Then they celebrated unleavened bread on Saturday, and then we arrive at the Feast of first fruits on Sunday. Listen to these words from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, years later. This is really beautiful. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. So it is profoundly significant that Jesus, who died at the time of Passover, rose from the dead on the day after that next Sabbath, on the day of first fruits, the feast of first fruits. So as the ancient Jewish, you guys didn't know you're going to get a history lesson this morning. I apologize. I should have prepared you. But this, this, this is the beautiful reality of the sovereignty of God, his sovereignty over time and space. As the Jewish priests would wave their first fruits of grains at the, at the, end of the, at the beginning of the season as a way to be accepted by God. And a, and a way to celebrate the incoming harvest. So the sacrifice of our great high priest was waved before God the Father as a guarantee of the acceptance of his people and of God's blessing to follow after that. So Jesus dying on Passover and rising on the Feast of Firstfruits is the fulfillment of imagery, thousands of years of imagery before them. And so if you've ever wondered why Jesus did stuff like this, if you've read this and you're kind of like in agreement with these Jews, like, yeah, Jesus, why don't you just come out with it? Just say who you are and what you're here to do. Why don't you just make your messianic claim explicit? Well, I think this is why. Jesus was delaying so that by the sovereign grace of God, we'd believe even more fully. One, that he's sovereign over time and man, dying at just the right time. And second, that he is the long-promised Passover lamb come to take away sin. So I hope this idea of Jesus intentionally pushing his death back in little phrases like he escaped from their hands, I hope these things can ratchet your confidence even more to the scriptures and to the Messiah of the scriptures. Jesus taken earlier or later than the Father's plan would have ruined the imagery it would have corrupted the connection with the Old Testament that Jesus came to make. So let the muscles of your faith be strengthened this morning with this raw display of sovereign power and sacrificial grace from King Jesus. Anyway, that hasn't taken us too much further into our text this morning, so we should probably get back to it. 
before we run out of time. So though Jesus is being a little benign here, implicit rather than explicit, ultimately, is, what is he claiming that's going to demand a verdict from you? A few things. First, Jesus claims to be the sovereign issuer of eternal life. He's the sovereign issuer of eternal life. Jesus claims to be the one that dispenses eternal life. And this would be an outlandish claim from anyone other than God. And if God is the one offering this eternal life, we can readily assume that we're not just talking about quantity of days here. We're talking about quality of quantity of days here. Because no one else can make good on this promise, Jesus is claiming to be God here. Because he's God, he's the sovereign issuer of eternal life. But he makes other claims too. Second, in verse 28, Jesus claims to be the sovereign protector of the Father's flock. The sovereign protector of the Father's flock. Sometimes, if one of my kids comes down in the, in the middle of the night afraid, which just so happens to be like every night for the last 30 nights or something, it seems like. Um, I think just 10, but it's been a lot of nights recently. I'll comfort them, and I'll pray for them in a sleepy stupor, and I'll tell them things like, Look, baby, if anyone's coming after you, they've got to get through me to get to you. I got you. No one's going to get you. One of my kids has this recurring nightmare about some evil man that rides a flying motorcycle that comes through kids' bedrooms through the second-story window to steal them away from their families at night. I kid you not. I'm not sure where those thoughts from come from, um, but we should probably put a hold on our Netflix account for now until we find out. When this comes up, sometimes I think, but what if someone does come through the window to get them? What if I don't know until it's too late? What if I'm asleep? And now it's the parents who are having all the nightmares this morning. My point is this. For as many resources as I, assurances as I offer to my kids about their safety and that nothing will ever happen under my care and watch, I can never say that with full sovereign confidence. Do you know why? Because I'm not God. I cannot be everywhere at once. I cannot 100% of the time guarantee their safety with honesty because I'm limited. I'm human. If a flying motorcycle man comes into my kid's bedrooms in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping, there's not much I can do about that. But do you know who isn't limited by sleep? Do you know who is faster than the average flying motorcycle man? Jesus. Jesus is God. And in verse 28, he can make this claim and it's completely honest. It's completely legit. He can say, look, Josh, if anyone is coming after you, they got to get through me. And they ain't getting through me. I got you. You're mine. He can say that with complete and utter honesty. If you're sheep in God's flock this morning, you're in Jesus' hand, and you are unsnatchable. You're safe. Notice the teamwork there between the Father and the Son. In verse 28, Jesus tells us that we're unsnatchable because we're safe in his hand. Then look at verse 29. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Most of us have probably had the opportunity to hold the hand of a child while another adult stood on their other side and held their other opposite hand. There are at least two results when this happened. First is safety. When you're walking through the parking lot at Giant and you don't want the child to run into danger, 
you both keep your hands firmly wrapped around the child's hands. Between the two of you, they're safe. But it's not just safety, it's also this joyful freedom. It stokes the fires of joyful freedom in them within the context of safety. They can jump further and longer without fear of skinned knees or scraped hands because they're hanging on to you. The youthful joy that accompanies that kind of safety is, I think, akin to what we should feel when we hear that we are in the Father's and the Son's hands. The Father's got us, and the Son's got us, and we are safe. What could, ultimately speaking, go wrong? Who can stand against us when the Father's got us and when the Son's got us? Might we face hardship, brokenness, death? Yes, we might, and yes, we will. But because God's got us, there is ultimate safety and ultimate joy. So when that tax return comes up short, when the promotion never comes, when the diagnosis is really bleak, when your singleness is a burden you cannot bear, when the pink slip slides across the desk, when the road before you is insurmountable, when whatever's happening is happening, take stock in the fact that the Son and Father have you. And just know that somehow, through that scenario, God is working for your good and his glory to keep your soul safe. There's just this rock-solid kind of unshakable joy that comes with knowing that the Father and the Son have you. And I don't mean happiness here, Trinity. I don't mean smiles and jokes and lightheartedness. I mean rock-solid, unshakable, deeply wrought joy that your God and your Christ have you and that you're safe and that there is freedom in this. That'll keep your ship afloat when even the most violent winds are blowing against the sails of your life. Dive deep into that this morning, Trinity. Let this truth stir you to worship, to freedom, and to joy. Here's another claim Jesus makes in verse 29. He claims to be the sole conduit for God's sovereign grace. The only way to get to it is through Jesus. We kind of exhausted this claim last week, so if you're interested in hearing more on that, you can jump onto the podcast or onto the website or whatever. But the Father has given the sheep to Jesus. The Father doesn't give that right or access to anyone else. It's only through Jesus. Getting to God means going through Jesus. Next claim in verse 30. Jesus claims to be at one with the Father. So Jesus makes one final claim here that ends up breaking the back of the Jews or the straw that breaks the back of the Jews here. He claims to be at one with the Father. Kids, we got some of you in here, some of you older kids this morning. Kids, how many of you have ever heard that you look just like one of your parents? Have you heard that before? Yeah, I remember hearing that all the time when I was a kid too. My mother-in-law is prolific at pointing out resemblances in the family. Our kids haven't been out of the womb more than 60 seconds before she's identifying which of them had my eyes, Miriam's toes, and Grandpa's elbows. I kid you not. She's just got skills in this area. It's remarkable. She's so attuned to our family's resemblances, even Grandpa's elbows. 
It is much the same with the Father and the Son. Their resemblances are remarkable. The Son looks just like the Father. He claims to be at one with him and to know the will of the Father intimately. And so Jesus is cornering us again here. He's forcing us to land on one or two sides of a verdict. Will we believe his claims or will we reject his claims? You know, when someone makes a claim that's just too good to be true, we rightly want to see results that back up that claim. Someone recently recommended that I check out the Capitalist Pro Hair Regrowth Laser Cap. I can't imagine why they'd make this recommendation, recommendation to me, but they did. And after the recommendation, I looked them up. Sure enough, they're a legit company with some pretty staggering claims. According to their website, Capitalist represents the finest in at-home hair restoration. With Capitalist, you're on a journey toward a newer, fuller head of hair. At a very affordable $2,999, who wouldn't want to give this far-fetched idea a try, right? If one of you want to buy it for me, I'm up for giving it a try. But none of us believe claims like this because we haven't seen the proof of bona fide results. The same is the case for Jesus, and he knew it. He didn't ask for us to blindly believe his claims. He had proof. After Jesus makes the claims he did in verses 22 to 30, the Jews have had enough. They boil over. Standing before them is someone they cannot wrap their minds around. And so they try to bury the problem. Literally, they shoo him out of the temple by launching stones at him. And so in verse 32, Jesus is like, hold up. Wait, I have legitimized my claims over and over and over again. I've done all kinds of good stuff, miraculous stuff. Which one of those good things that I did are you launching that stone for? And the Pharisees are like, you're a blasphemer, man. We're not upset by the good you do. We are upset by the words you say. Verse 33. And Trinity, you need to know that these were some hard words for me to swallow this week. What made Jesus so polarizing wasn't the good that he did. It was the words that he said. Man, you can draw a ton of people in by showing gospel love to them, self-sacrificing love, and you should. You should mow that extra patch of grass or shovel a little further down the sidewalk or bake the cookies for that neighbor or just walk across the street to be a good neighbor and engage. I've done many of these things recently. We like to think of them as building bridges, don't we? Even building gospel bridges. But I wonder if you've ever driven the message, the words of the gospel across that bridge that you've so meticulously built. Because eventually, at some point in the conversation, it's going to need to press, to press toward a verdict on the identity of this man. His claims and his works demand a verdict. I gotta be honest with you this morning. Most often, it's easier for me to show love than to speak love. But in order to be like our Christ in John 10, we must learn to do both. In all of our relationships, Our good works should give way to God's words. Our good works should give way to God's words. 
as followers of Jesus, we should camp out at the intersection of good works and God's words. We should camp out at the intersection of good works and God's words. That's where we should live. Would you pray for me that I would live there? Because I struggle to. That I'd have the courage to not only show the truth, but to speak it. And this brings us to number two this morning. Jesus' works demand a verdict. First his claims did, and now his works do. They also demand confidence in his identity. First, we saw that Jesus' claims demand a verdict. If he is God as he claims, then he will care for you like none other could. But Jesus' works demand a verdict too in confidence in who he says he is, his identity as the self-proclaimed Son of God, the Messiah. So Jesus isn't an empty infomercial. He doesn't expect us to believe him without substantiation. And praise God, because I think all of us in here would have difficulty believing that Jesus was God if he never did anything to prove his assertion. But he backed his talk up. Verse 25, look at it. Believe because of the work that I do. Verse 31, believe because of what I've done. Verse 37, I'm doing the Father's work so that you might believe. Verse 39, even if you don't believe my words, believe my works. You see, Jesus' works demand a verdict too. Not just his claims. Just a cursory glance through the gospel forces this question on us this morning. Did he really turn the water into wine? Did he really claim to heal the official son? Did he really heal the paralytic at that pool? Did he really multiply the bread and the fish? Jesus is saying, look, my, my works speak for themselves. I am who I said I am. I'm the son of God. I'm one with the Father. Believe me. I'll shepherd you to life. Come on, follow me. What his works are saying. But these Jews remain stubbornly blind to his works, stubbornly deaf to his claims. And so they pick up rocks and start chucking. So which, which of Jesus' words had offended them? It's this. They say, you make yourself God. And look how Jesus responds here. It's incredibly instructive for us, I think. He says in verse 35, Is it not written? Jesus himself had a high view of the scriptures. When he's talking about what's written, he's talking about uh, the scriptures right here. He's referring to Psalm 82. He had internalized the scriptures. He had memorized them and he had unleashed them to correct the error in those around them. So in, in verse 35, Jesus is quoting Psalm 82. And this argumentation here that Jesus gives is a little bit tricky to follow. It wouldn't have been tricky for the Jews standing there with him because they would have understood more fully what he was talking about, but it's a little obscure for us. But it's clear if you go back and look at Psalm 82, by the context of Psalm 82, that's the term God, and it's, if you can think of it this way, small g God, not like the one true God, small g God is used to describe people other than God himself. And so Jesus' basic line of argument is this. If there are others whom God can address as God, small g God, on what biblical basis, Jews, Pharisees, could anyone object to Jesus implying that I'm God? Jesus is sort of sucker punching them there, here, and he's, and he's uh, demonstrating a better hold on the Old Testament than they had, something that they claim to know and revere. He knows it better than they do. And so they're cornered and they know it. Because God has called other people God, it's not so big of a deal that Jesus is claiming that own title for himself. They probably get all blustery and defensive, and then they go grab him to kill him, but he escapes somehow. 
Now, Jesus knows this isn't a conclusive argument. It's a diversion. It doesn't settle the issue in his mind. It's a true valid point about the certain flexibility of language. But this is a little maneuver by Jesus to delay stones from flying and bought him enough time before they tried to seize him there in verse 39. It bought him enough time to give them one more, him one more invitation to them. I think this is a demonstration of mercy by Jesus here. It gives them one last chance to speak a word of hope into their lives. Verse 37, look at it with me. Look, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I am, even though you don't believe me, believe the things that I'm doing, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's giving them one last grasp at hope in a Savior. But they refuse. And like we mentioned at the outset, Jesus hops in a boat and heads across the river. And there's a whole host of people across the river there that have heard the claims, seen his works, and now believe. So, where do you stand this morning? It's the big idea, the, the one idea that I think encapsulates the text this morning. The verdict is in. You can trust Jesus because he's proven himself to be God's good shepherd. He's made claims, he's done works, and you can trust him because he's proven himself to be God's good shepherd. You know, almost every time Jesus speaks in this gospel, there are layers upon layers of meaning because of the tremendous amount of symbolism at play in the Old Testament and in the Jewish faith in general. This occasion was no different. Jesus, during the Feast of Dedication, remember, this is the holiday that would have commemorated the rededication of the temple. This is a very temple-centric celebration. Jesus, during this celebration, is implying a gigantic theological bomb here. It's subtle. We've already mentioned that this was the time of the Festival of Lights. And this is no small deal in Jewish history. They still celebrate it today by lighting those seven candles on the menorah. And so it's no small deal that Jesus right here is stepping into the spotlight that those candles are shining. Spotlight that's long been pointed at this very moment in time. At the very time in which the temple is being rededicated and set apart for God, Jesus is saying, I'm the real temple. I'm the temple. I'm the place where you go to meet with God. From now on, if you want to get to God, it's simple. Come through me. I'm the temple who was set apart by the Father to make a way back to him. I'm the temple where the ultimate and last sacrifice took place. No more earthly temple. No more bloody sacrifices. No more human priests. Only Christ. There is no other name given among men by which you can be saved this morning. The Jews didn't know it yet, but Hanukkah was about to become irrelevant or less relevant, I should say less relevant than Christmas and Easter because Jesus came to fulfill that promise and that image. So friend, if you've never come to Jesus, you will never get to God. If you've never come to Jesus, you will never get to God. Would you sink the roots of your trust deep into his claims and his works this morning? Most significantly, would you seek sink your deepest trust into the work of his cross. When we encounter the living Christ, 
the one that left the glory of his throne to endure the wrath of the Father in my place, when we encounter that Christ, we must submit to him. We must plunge all of our faith in him, the one who lived in this broken world and died a violent death and victoriously rose in our place. When we encounter him, we can only worship him, but only if we come through the new temple, only if we come through Jesus Christ. You can trust Jesus because he's proven himself to be God's good shepherd, a God that cares deeply for his sheep. If you are a sheep in God's flock this morning, I hope you'll revel in that and dive deep, deeply into his care. If you aren't one, I hope that you'll join God's flock today by way of the good shepherd, by way of Jesus. If you've got questions about that, let's talk. Jesus is God's good shepherd, and you can trust him. Would you pray with me? Lord, some of your claims are hard to believe. 2,000 years later, some of your works are hard to believe. I pray that you'd strengthen the muscles of our faith this morning. That we believe, we confess that we believe, would you help our unbelief? Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as Savior, Redeemer, Shepherd, that they would come to know him in that way this morning. And the rest of us would just revel in this, that we would stay in close proximity to our shepherd, that we would eat near you, that we would drink near you, that we would uh, enjoy the care that only comes from being near you. We ask all this in the name of our shepherd king. Amen.